Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Verga, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Devin D'Agostino. Devin, how you doing? Hey, guys. How are you? They said they're all good, Devin, all the <laughs> listeners. And we're also joined by a very special guest, our first guest, Rachel Malik. Rachel, welcome to the show. To say I'm honored is an understatement. You guys, gentlemen, I am so thrilled to be here. I really am. We're thrilled to have you. It's arguable that the guests last episode were all my friends in my head. Those were the first uh, guests. But So welcome, Devin, Rachel, and Kevin. Uh, we're all going to stop making sense in just a few minutes. And what that means is that every episode, Dev and I, and sometimes a guest like Rachel, choose a talking head song to analyze and ponder. And we let our minds wander and take us to uncharted realms of science and comedy and music. And we answer such burning questions as, who took the money? Who took the money away? Where? Where is my common sense? Why stay in college? Why go to night school? And most importantly, where is that large automobile? All this and more coming up on Devin and Kevin and Rachel. Stop making sense. Welcome to the show, guys. We have to get like an applause track. I feel like, whew. I feel very warmly welcomed anyway. Like really, I'm so excited. I'm excited too, because this is a great song. This must be the place. One of, probably one of Talking Heads' most popular, if not their most popular song. Absolutely. Which is must be the place off of, well, it's arguable. Once in a Lifetime and Psycho Killer might be up there. But this yeah, one, if I had to rank, I'd go Once in a Lifetime, Psycho Killer, this must be the place. Okay. Top three. Top three, I'll take that. Not my personal top three, but like definitely oh. Talking Heads, fame. Okay. Popularity-wise. Well Popularity-wise. That's fair. Yeah, this week we're doing This Must Be the Place, Naive Melody, off of the 1983 album Speaking in Tongues. It closes the album off. Like we said before, it's one of the most popular and dearly loved talking head songs. Rachel, you chose this song. I did. You maybe give us a little insight on why you chose it. Yeah, so Kevin essentially just, I don't know if this is what you're going to do for all your guests or if I was just the special first guest, but I got a personalized playlist of songs that like might hit home or something. Most of them had to do with love, which I appreciated. But yeah, that's typically the kind of music I listen to. So it was, it was, I have to like say upfront, I'm not the biggest Talking Heads fan ever been. I'll be, I'll be upfront about that. But I think that maybe gives me some new perspective to like dig into these songs a little bit. And I'm obviously a fan of the show. So I feel like I'm learning more every week. Every time I would go through all the songs, this one just hit me. And I very much, I just had the vision. Some songs just paint a very vivid picture in your brain where I can like picture the scene. And that's what happened for this. Nice. We were talking about visual thinking last week. So this is a nice mm-hmm. uh, seamless transition to this episode. And fun fact about this song too. 
is that even though it's one of their most popular songs and it's the one you gravitated towards, it actually isn't the normal arrangement that they have with instruments. This is something I just learned literally mm. second before we started podcasting. It was on that little, you know, on Spotify, it has lyric, blah, blah, or whatever. Yes. There's actually some really cool stuff on there. But anyway, okay. it's called, so the song is called This Must Be the Place Naive Melody. And I was wondered, why is it called Naive Melody? It's because they switched right. around instrumentation. So the bassist, Tina Weymouth, was on guitar. The guitarist, Jerry Harrison, was on bass, and Byrne was on keyboard, which isn't their normal arrangement. Oh, yeah. I've always noticed that in, in the Stop Making Sense film that Tina picks up a guitar. Jerry's still on keys, but it's interesting because he's just, like, up there rocking it. Rachel, you said that the intro of the song is what struck you. Yeah. And I agree. Yeah. Because it's, it's 20% of the song. The song is five minutes, and the intro, quote-unquote, is over a minute long. I have love hate with the super long intros obviously top 40 kind of stuff isn't typically set up in that way because you're just getting right to it and it's very like cookie cutter so this is definitely outside the norm but I think that first of all just gives you a chance to get into the vibe of the song which I appreciate especially in this case can I read my scene that popped into my head I swear this was very authentic yeah please do this is the scene when that intro starts playing that I feel in my soul here we go there are two lovers they're hipster-ish. She has bangs, but they're really, really short, like micro bangs. You know, I, not many people can pull it off. It's arguable mm-hmm. whether she can pull it off, but she does it anyway with confidence, which is important to note. Mm-hmm. Her hair's probably dyed a wild color, but only on the end. Mm-hmm. She wears a mini skirt. It's cute, but it's not sexy. Again, important to note. The guy, he wears a thrifted striped button down with, a, with the sleeves rolled. He wears glasses, but he doesn't need them. You know what I mean? I say while I'm wearing my blue light glasses. <laughs> they're obviously in in a field. When you guys get the field vibe, they're definitely in love. They hold hands, but only when no one's around because they're not doing it for show. They're doing it because they love each other. Of course. There's wildflowers just all around. It's beautiful. They'll laugh at how lame they lame and quintessential they probably look, but they don't care. It's and then I said they drink warm liquor the in the time. warm sun. Lovely. <laughs> and they don't worry. Wait, this is my favorite part. I forgot I wrote this. And they don't worry about lame stuff like taxes or pandemics or other people. <laughs> They're just happy. Those lame that's, things. Like that's taxes. the vibe that I get. Her name's probably Violet. His probably. name is probably Dan. And he always writes Violet. it in all caps. Yeah. <laughs> Her name is Violet. Her hair is Violet. Rachel, is this yeah. song about love? Yes. I think it's about trying to explain what love is the feeling but it's hard to pin down and I think that's what this all is it's a very like slippery concept and it's a very slippery song it's a slippery song not to get confused with slippery people off the same album (laughs) that's interesting Um, it's not it's not what love is defined as but how it feels I like that Devin you had something to say I think this is a cool segue for us to stop making sense and go down our slippery slope of chaos as we usually do But I like that you said it's a love song, but something about it doesn't really make sense. It's interesting what you said, Rachel, because David Byrne refers to this song as a love song made up of completely non sequiturs. So basically, each statement is unique and has nothing to do with the other one. Home is where I want to be. Pick me up and turn me around. I feel numb, born with a weak heart. I guess I must be having fun. In isolation, and even together, those lines have nothing to do with each other. And yet, we come up with a narrative for the song. We came up with that really fun narrative about Violet and Dan with all the caps. Thank um, you. Just because it's something we naturally do. I mean, in part, it has to do with the fact that it has a, const- a continuous melody. Um, but that's one song. But why can't we view it as a bunch of separate lines is my question. Why do we automatically create this story? It's sort of because we're evol- evolutionarily programmed 
to make narratives, to pick up pattern. The caveman, who can associate a rumbling in the bushes with the saber-toothed tiger, or red berries good, yellow berries poisonous, is more, like to, more likely to produce a bunch of other little cavemen that can also pick up on these patterns. Nice. This is something that has a major role in our superstitions. Um, why we believe in luck. We wear two mis mismatching socks, we get an A on our test, and suddenly we have a pair of lucky socks. So you can see how this can lead to us making stories and creating narratives that aren't really there. Interesting. So the implications of these narratives that we put onto things aren't really considered until existentialism, existentialist philosophy, which is a big favorite of Kevin's and a big favorite conversation of ours. So this is a nice uh, little talk for us to have today. So Kierkegaard, father of existentialism, says life can only be understood backwards, but we must live it forwards. So in other words, our life isn't necessarily progressing towards some ultimate end, but we place meaning upon reflection and we assume it was there the whole time, right? You don't know where you're going to be. No one could have planned that we're in a pandemic right now. But when we look back and we look back at specific events, we can say, oh, well, I did this because this was going to happen, things like that. So then, then Satra comes along and he takes this even a step further. He writes this novel, Nausea which is about this lonely historian who's writing this biography and he becomes increasingly nauseated, right? He comes separate from the world. He doesn't know what's going on because as he's collecting more info on this figure that he's writing about, he begins to realize that this narrative arc, this common thread running through this person's life just isn't there. There's all these dispersed, disparate details and he can't connect them. Um, there's no single narrative, right? There's no internal meaning. So he realizes his conclusion, both as the author in the book and as the author writing about that, is that our lives don't follow a narrative. The big point of existentialism is that there's no external meaning to life. There's no ultimate end for us. You could die at any moment. Things could happen at any moment. Um, we don't have a clear beginning, middle, and end. The burden of our existence, the burden of meaning in our lives is in us. Oh, well, thank you guys. That was our show. This has been Devin and Kevin Stop Making Sense. Nothing matters and your life is pointless. Goodbye, everyone. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think humans, I view humans as meaning-making machines. Uh, like if all the humans are, you know, I like to think more universally. If all the rational beings in the universe disappeared, I think meaning is gone from the universe, even if there's still living things like trees and grass and algae. I think meaning is gone because meaning-making machines being our brains are no longer there to, to add a nice narrative to it. Rachel, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, oh, this is hard. I didn't know we were going to take this turn. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think there's definitely something to be said for the fact that we're so inclined to just create the narrative. I think that says something. And, and you, you, you spoke to that point as well. Just you, you want to make sense of something. There's something within us that wants to tie up all the strings. And even when they're not there, we just make it up. So then that begs the like, is it meaningless ultimately? That, oh, I don't know. Interesting. I'm going to throw it back at you. Like, what do you think that means? Because since it's a love song, what do you think they're trying to say about love specifically if the love doesn't exist? say it ain't so well i think i mean it's definitely a love song and i think the person speaking is definitely in love and i think maybe the idea behind it right with the fact that nothing really sticks together is sort of like 
you don't need love. Love is messy. It doesn't need to have some neat story, right? Love rarely follows some predetermined path. I think the singer in this song is just sort of embracing the love for what it is. All these spontaneous, random things that can feel this love he's putting down mm-hmm. into words. I think that it's not an overly sentimental song, even though it is a love song. And that's kind of the idea behind it too, is that when you take all of these non sequiturs, you can talk about love in such a way of just how we experience it, right? Um, embracing it for the current moment rather than trying to put some, oh, we met here and then our love blossomed into this and this and this. It's just taking it for what it is, embracing love in every moment that he has it. Is that true love? Is that true love is to no longer care, just like Violet and Dan, who don't care about taxes (laughs) or plagues upon humanity and these trivial things, is to just be wholly concerned with you and your loved one in the moment and no longer worried about things like posting things on Instagram or making sure people know the, the nice story of how you met. It's just we're fully happy now and here. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's like the goal. I don't know, that, that level of understanding your own self. I think a lot of people want that, but I don't know how, I think that's extra rare. But then again, I guess true love is rare. True love. Oh. <laughs> well, that's interesting too, because like with existentialist philosophy, it's all about, they want you to be immersed in the present moment, to fully embrace it. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of love we're talking about, I think a little bit. And it's interesting too, yeah. when I read your, scene for some reason like i pictured these two right but they're like completely in an isolated thing like i don't know it was almost a dystopia around them no i totally feel that right like it was almost so you have all these terrible things going around them but they're so in love that none of it matters to them but then you take a step like the camera zooms out and they're on this little patch of grass in the middle of a city burning down or something totally that's something crazy well if i can hop in here of course i think I don't think no. this is a very, very, in the, the romantic sense, not in terms of like a Cupid heart shape, but yeah. romanticism. I don't think this is a romanticized vision of love. I think this is a neurotic, over-analytical view of what love could be. And in fact, a Pitchfork review that I read for the album, uh, Speaking in Tongues, where they talk about the song, is that this song is voted most likely to be on a skeptic's wedding playlist, a neurotic concession of love. And I think I like that a lot, which is why I think this doesn't necessarily have to be a love song between two individuals. I actually did a nice little pronoun analysis in that there are 35 pronouns. Examples being I, me, we, you, she. I and me are used 24 times, 24 out of 35. Is that love? And we is used four times, you is six. And then she, there's one she pronoun, which is, is uh, that just like shocked me. I come home, she lifted up her wings. That's such a lovely imagery. That doesn't make sense. Are you dating a phoenix? You know, like, is it that, that Kanye West uh music video where he dates the alien from the sky with wings i just find that fascinating because i just feel like it's more love in terms of just loving the human experience and experiencing the human experience just the line i love the passing of time it's just like that's the kind of love he's talking about just love being in his or her own skin and just being alive and i think that's special and nice yeah i mean i think i got two main things for you there 
it was interesting that you counted up the pronouns, right? The eyes, the shoes, and he's, because I think what David Byrne would say, since he wrote this song, we talked about this last time, that we only <laughs> refer to David Byrne, we never refer to the whole talking heads. But he would be like, well, they're all separate lines, right? So each line, it is interesting that each separate line seems to be more about himself, his own experience, but it almost doesn't make sense to count up all the um, different pronouns because it's not one story. At the same time, it could be. And it's interesting too, I hate to <laughs> be dismissive because I'm not at all, but you say neurotic and I'm big on David Byrne being neurotic. If he listens to this playlist I and mean, this podcast, he's probably going to be like, geez, this kid calls me out every week. But yeah. this song of all of his songs is the one that I find almost least that. I actually think that less than over analysis, it's more of him just being in love, just experiencing it. The fact that it's all of these non sequiturs, these separate statements, it's just all glimpses of love and these periods that's come into him. I still, I, I hear you. I still feel it is, if you're a neurotic person, then you're a neurotic person in love. Take it from me, a neurotic person who <laughs> likes to love things and people. Um, the quote from a, a corresponding Stop Making Sense interview is they ask him about, you know, what type of songs does he make? And they're like, you don't really write love songs. This is him interviewing himself. But, you know, that's something else to get into. And David, the real David, responds in his big suit. I try to write songs about small things, paper, animals, a house. Love is kind of big. I have written a love song, though. And in this film, I sing it to a lamp, which is like kind of just enforces my own idea that it's not necessarily human to human love. I could love the lamp. And he really does seem to love the lamp and stop making sense. This is wild. I just love to watch you guys talk about it. This is cool because you guys really just take it to new levels and I so appreciate it. I'm just like absorbing Bring us it back all. to Earth. See, that's true. See, I'm getting the whole concept now. I'm just immersing myself into it. My big question when I was going through this is like, how, how do you define love? What does that look like? Is it possible? How could you begin to go about doing that? And I think the way it's done in this song is describing how you yourself are feeling. It's maybe less about the couple and more about like the transformed version of you. Perhaps the most transformative relationships are ones where, that are that, just that, transformative. And I think the constant reference of the speaker to himself is in the first person is telling in that regard. I, I almost see it now, knowing that none of these lines are related to each other and it's more this zoomed out picture of love. And that's almost like, let's say you're married to someone you love. And it's Aww. almost like a love song, not in a moment, not on a day, but just over a series of your life. And every line is like just some random day on the calendar year. And one day you're at work and it starts with home is where I want to be. And then something else. Maybe you sing it to your favorite bus and it says, pick me up and turn me around. And then the next line is <laughs> you're going to the dentist. And he says, I feel numb, born with a weak heart. I don't know anything. I don't know why he's at the dentist. I was thinking of Novocaine. But it's all these like little no, things here. that happen that make you love life and make you love the things around you. And it's zoomed out. And it's more, I just picture a, a line on random days of a calendar. That's my image that it gets me. I feel that. And I like that. And I think it's interesting compared to the like hyper specific place that I took it, like a very specific couple at a very specific instant of their romantic evolution. And you're thinking big picture. And I think it's definitely applicable to both. Well, that's interesting too, right? Because it speaks to your cavemen ancestors who were picking up on those patterns. Um, and I think we do the same thing with love, just as we do it with songs and stories. We put narratives on things. I mean, when you look back at relationships, you always think relationships had a beginning, middle, and end, but that's not really the case. 
Um, and I have to check. I don't know if the entire song is present tense, but I think exactly what Kevin was saying, that it's just moments. It's just moments within the love. It doesn't have to have a beginning or end, just different moments when this person felt love for the person they were with. And it doesn't need to be anything deeper than that. It's just the acceptance for love as love. I like that you bring up cavemen because in every song that we've analyzed, there's been one line or two lines or a verse that just are like, oh, that's the Kevin line for that one that describes Kevin very well. Of course, he didn't write it for me, but it feels like that sometimes. The one for this one is, I'm just an animal looking for a home and share the same space for a minute or two. And you love me till my heart stops. Love me till I'm dead. It's very... I mean, animalistic is one word, like a very unsexy view of love there. He calls himself an animal. He only wants to share the same space for a minute or two, not, not eternity. And then he talks about death. You love me till my heart stops. Love me till I'm dead. What struck me is that I feel like I've really worked to pursue a more cosmic perspective on things. And that sounds so pretentious when I say it, but I just try to like zoom out and really think, you know, what is love? And it's so beautiful when you're in it, but if to me, scientifically speaking, it's just a, a chain of chemical reactions associated with a pattern of behavior. And it does feel very animalistic when you boil that down to it. But at the end of the day, when you're feeling those things, you do want to be loved until you're dead. You never want to go away. So that one just struck with me because having been in love in the past and it was very swell, I feel those things. But then I have to like zoom out and think of my reptilian brain. That's really the, the guy driving this whole thing is my basic instincts from millennia ago that were developed for this. Right. But I think that's like the crux of ex- existentialism too, is that there's no external meaning. Sure. Love doesn't have, I mean, depending on your beliefs and depending on if you're a religious person or not, but love doesn't have some external meaning. There's no one to say this is important. This matters. All of that meaning comes from you we're put on the, we find ourselves in the world in a certain condition. And then it's up to us to place that meaning, right? Love doesn't need to be something else. Love doesn't need to be something that, oh, it's the most powerful thing in the universe. If you believe it is, if it has that meaning to you, whether that's true or not, though, I think it depends on who we are, right? I think it's a tough pill to swallow to say that there's no, my life doesn't have some external meaning. There's not a purpose that I'm here on the earth. Thanks, everyone. That's our show. You have to go find that purpose, and it's been really great. <laughs> I'm going to keep raising the outro music and lowering yeah, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, my question to the, to the both of you, I guess, is can the true existentialist be in love? Like, is, does love ex- – I don't know. I, I find hard – like, it's difficult for me to, like, marry the two. I don't mean to use marry as the verb there, but nice you know point. what I'm saying. Things. I just imagine a small existentialist child coming up and being like, can I be in love too, dad? <laughs> no. But like, can he? I don't ask know. It, I struggle with it. Let it go. I mean, I think that it's almost a stronger love, right? There's nothing outside saying that love is a good thing. It's only that person, the two people, them, the love is, the emotion is so strong that they put meaning to it, that they say it's important to them. I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult. Like, or if we say, is, do you meet your soulmate or not, right? But if you mm-hmm. meet someone and they're not necessarily your preordained soulmate, but you feel that connection with them, isn't that stronger than just being given that person? Isn't that stronger okay. than being told that the love is there? I don't know. I mean, that's just my feeling towards it, but I can see I that. see your point, but like no one tells you that you know, when you meet your soulmate, they're not like you have met your soulmate. Like there's not a thing that says that. I think that feeling is that 
telling you. I don't, I don't think you can separate it. Do you believe in soulmates? I think an existentialist <laughs> wouldn't say that soulmates exist. Right. The existentialist, I think, would say, I mean, because for you, you would meet this person, you believe that, oh, that because you feel that way about them. You think, oh, yeah. this person was my soulmate. This was meant to be. The existentialist would probably say, no, this wasn't meant to be, but this is right. This is what mm-hmm. I love. This is what I want. I think it reminds me of the song by uh, Stephen Stills. Love the one you're with. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Love the one you're with. It's not like this is meant to be and there's one person out there for you, but it's what it is right now. And again, it's not like a very sexy, lovey-dovey thing. Is like, well, I got this person that I'm in love with and that's, you know, I guess that's the best I have right now. But it is what you have. And it kind of is like a bird hand is worth two in the bush. Like you have love. And appreciate it as much as you can. Yeah, also, I would think, I'm, yeah, continue. I was just going to talk about relationship drama that you might find in in a existentialist um, relationship. Maybe this can become a bit, but I feel like I feel like being an existentialist <laughs> makes you maybe more aware of common relationship problems. If I'm like totally aware of the animalistic nature or the the impulsive nature of humans. I might be more accommodating to a significant other coming and saying, hey, I actually have feelings for this other person and I'm struggling with that. And if I'm just like, oh, that's not what love is. You're supposed to love me and only me in this hyper romantic idea, I would be frustrated. But if I maybe take like a more existential scientific view of it, I'm like, well, I can't fault you because you're just feeling things that humans have to feel. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of those existentialists did have open relationships. The most famous being Simone de Beauvoir and Satra. They came back to each other, but they had an open relationship. But the interesting thing about it too is they both struggled with it. There's letters between one another, and you can see there's jealousy there. There's still all those emotions. So I think there's things we can't escape from. And maybe, and we can, can continue on this too, but I just want to go back onto that song, that idea of love the one you're with, right? Because that's also a great song. Great song. Um, and it's cool to see we listen to songs outside the talking heads too. I don't. I only <laughs> read about this in an article. Continue. About the talking heads. <laughs> um, no, I think it's interesting with love too, because I almost think, right, it's love the one you're with. It feels like you're settling for someone, but I almost think love that develops over time when you get to know someone, you get to know them better is almost a more powerful love than the love that is just that spur of the moment you see them and you know, you feel that connection. What do you guys think? I feel that. I think you've got a good point there. The conversation Kevin mentioned earlier, I get that I'm allowed to understand that you have this human rat. Like, that's not a good scene. I don't want to watch that. So I'm like, X, like, move on. Like, just fall in love and be happy and put a nice soundtrack over it. And I'm just going to feel good. I get that that's not real life, blah, blah, blah. But it's just, I want there to be a bigger picture. In my mind, there just is a person out there who is my soulmate. That's just my thing. So I can't just give in. You guys are making excellent points and I appreciate them, but I think you're wrong. I'm not, I'm not, trying, to, I'm not trying to convince you because your impression of me in a relationship was very strong. <laughs> well, if you think that, well, maybe we can talk it through. <laughs> if you think that's good, come over to my lounge. That's how I am in relationships. I have a deeper voice for some reason and I have a beard and a pipe. <laughs> the word on the street. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't go out very much. Um, <laughs> 
you're allowed to have emotions. I don't know. I struggle with it. I think it's easier. I think my way is easier and that's why I like it. That's so interesting because I feel the exact opposite. I feel like if I was, I'd be constantly pining for like the soulmate and I would be so yeah, Welcome to my life, about- Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I have oh, more yeah. existential dread all the time, you know? So that's something yeah. I walk around I don't with. have much of that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. We have so different, like different things are plaguing us like at the same, Devin, where do you stand? I don't know. I mean, I'm on this existentialist like maybe, vibe because I've been yeah. taking a class on existentialism. But I like... I could tell. I could tell. I mean, you guys know me. Paleontology guy. Very big on evolution, right? Science. Mm-hmm. And it's tough within that kind of view to have predetermined meaning, to have meaning coming from outside yourself. So I sort of like that idea of we place the meaning. We, put, we are the responsible for placing meaning. The burden of you know, our existence is on us. We're free to do that. At the same time, I'm a sucker for, you know, a romantic comedy. I know you are, Devin. Yeah, I'm a sucker for it. So it's, I it's, feel it's like you're, I feel like you're the middle. Like if me and Kevin are two ends of the spectrum, like Devin's kind of the middle. And that's why this works. Like that's why this conversation works. Friendships exist on a continuum. And there's different continuums for different types of friendships. And maybe this is ours. Me and Kevin are at two ends. And if it went a little further than Kevin, like I would not be friends with that person because he'd be too like, love is real. And I'd be like, X. you know what I mean? It's good to know that I'm teetering on the side of <laughs> no, the not- of you. <laughs> if Kim was just a little bit more of an asshole, he, I would... That's not what I meant. <laughs> Love isn't real. Get out of here, Kevin. <laughs> I really do feel like... At first, I was like, God, do I really sound like such a square, black and white type of person no. regarding love? But maybe I do. Because romantic gestures, like, I don't... I know, I'm never pining for that. I don't know what a romantic... I'm just thinking of someone singing to me or holding a jukebox. Yeah, I would be like, I feel like you've done that. (laughs) There's a very real picture in my head of like Kevin outside someone's house with the boombox and this song is playing and you're like, I don't care. There's not a plan. I love you. (laughs) Life doesn't matter, but you matter to me. That's my go-to That's beautiful. Yeah. That's romantic as hell. Yeah. See, well, that's the whole point of existentialism, though, right? Love doesn't matter, yeah. but you matter to me. I guess that's a good way to wrap it on up. Like, that's a good way to, for me to come to terms with what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, I know, guess that's beautiful and all. Whatever. But. It's beautiful. Let's, you know, <laughs> let's nice. take a short break. We'll thank our sponsors. We'll let that digest. And, uh, okay. you know, we'll come back stronger than ever. Thank you to drivebyswooning.com. That's right, drivebyswooning.com for sponsoring this episode. Devin, Rachel, have you heard of this hip new young trend of family and friends forming parades who then drive by their loved ones' houses wishing them a happy birthday or a happy retirement at a safe distance? Have you guys heard about this? I have, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. You know, it sounds lovely, but let's just say, theoretically speaking, that you've dedicated the past eight and a half years of your life developing an artificial intelligence algorithm so intricate that it has even developed and surpassed the complex range of human emotions. And let's say, theoretically speaking, that during this near decade-long pursuit of power and wealth and fame, you've alienated all your friends and loved ones, and perhaps 
Speaking theoretically here, of course, you've forgotten to take a single day for yourself in over 3,000 days of work. And you look up and think, huh, I have no one to drive past my house and wish me a happy 45th birthday. Well, this is where drivebyswooning.com comes in. I've programmed my AI technology with my self-driving car algorithm to form an artificial parade of loved ones to drive past your house and wish you a happy birthday. Listen, it really works. Here's our first prototype. Hi, Kevin. Happy birthday. It is your special day. You are 45. Thank you, Derek. Thank you very much. Now, we haven't gotten the artificial skin polymer to look as realistic as we might have hoped at this point. So, disclaimer, we recommend all children under the age of 17 to avert their eyes until the pain, until the parade is over. And guess what, guys? Guess. What? What? A, a special promo is going on right now for drivebyswooning.com. This offer is going to last forever. I will literally do this for free anytime, anywhere, literally anything to get out of the house and see real life, non-simulated joy. So please, please go to drivebyswooning.com today for your drive by swooning. Thank you, drivebyswooning.com. Love is a hoax. Oh, what? <laughs> X. Why, why did he turn French? Welcome back to the show. Kevin, take it away. Thank you, robot. Um, so to, <laughs> to keep it moving, I think this song is one that sticks with you so much. And I think most people remember the first time they heard it or have it so immediately grasped onto something in your life do either you remember the first time you heard it or have any specific moment associated with it i was six Aww. years old yeah go on <laughs> i was six years old um i had just gotten the booster shot right mm -hmm. so my arm was numb we're sitting in the car have my little lollipop um and i look outside the window and i see these fields right with these little sheep on them it was beautiful when I was in Ohio, right? They're grazing and it's very peaceful. And it's very nice and I'm thinking about it and I'm distracted and my arm doesn't hurt as much anymore. I'm looking out the window, I'm looking at the lollipop. Tootsie roll, cherry flavor. Mm -hmm. And the radio comes on and this must be the place, please. Right? This must mm -hmm. be the place, please. And then as it's starting, you know, as the intro's coming in, it's very smooth, very nice. A storm comes from out of nowhere. A storm comes right over the field, right, right over. Oh my God. And it, it but it's like that at the moments before, it hasn't started raining yet. Nothing's happened. It's just like cloudy sky. And I'm licking the lollipop, right? I'm counting the licks, trying to get to the center. I get it. Um, to the sweet Tootsie Roll. And we're driving and I'm listening to it. And that was my first experience with the song. I'll never forget it. Wow. Devin, that's beautiful. I have one question for you. Uh -huh. How many licks did it take oh to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll? I was so invested in the song that I lost count. Uh, the world Actually, may I hate know. the song now. Uh -huh. <laughs> because I always associate it with distracting me. I was so close, too. Wow. That, was, that was almost 20 years ago at this point. 
you're still upset. Wow. Yeah. Well, Time, man. I have one more question. How the hell are we going to pull ourselves out of this deep hole that <laughs> Devin's dug us? And my answer to that is talking about myself, my always good go-to fallback. And the first time I heard this song was my junior year of college, just really? two years ago. My junior year of college was the first time I listened to it because I was taking a personality psychology class. And for the term paper, we had to do a psychoanalytic psychoanalysis of an artist or anyone. I chose Logic, the rapper Logic. And because I studied music, I figured that I should study a musician and, and psychoanalyze them. So I was looking for a lot of psychological journals that talked about music. And I found this one called This Must Be the Place Thinking Psychical Life with Music by Dr. Adam Bloom from San Francisco, California. It's a very good article. Firstly, twofold. It mentions This Must Be the Place, which changed my life musically. And it's also such a well-written journal that it changed how I saw scientific research it's very good i recommend anyone to, if you can get your hands on it yeah it's very great high praise yes and i reached out to adam bloom this today talking about this because i i liked it so much that when i refound it i pulled up my term paper because i knew we were going to talk about this song i went into my bibliography found it again and loved it again i reached out to him and he's like hey i just saw american utopia on broadway it was great i was like i just saw it too he's like send me the podcast and the paper i was like all right when both are in in order i will send them over i think dr bloom should come on do you think dr bloom believes in love can you ask him kevin I, I'll try to ask him. You know what? I'll send him this episode and we'll see what he says. Maybe he'll, he'll Okay, so can I make a personal... Dr. Bloom, if you're listening, do you believe in love? And if so, send us a voice memo of you talking about it. And we'll play it in an episode. Love is real. Oh, wow. Oh, hey, look at that. This journal documents and analyzes work he did with one of his patients. He starts off by saying that this patient is scatterbrained and really struggles to put together coherent conversations so he was having trouble getting to know him and and really learning about him and what really grounded them was music and that's where it kind of set a nice floor for the conversation and let more human events take place i'll keep going into it but i feel like that it's kind of what we're doing right now is that music brought the, brought the conversation that would not have happened at this time in this place. But that's what we're doing right now. Look I out totally for episode agree. eight where Dr. Bloom sues us for taking his idea and using music as a conversation. <laughs> it's a full Catch us on trial. Four hour litigation. <laughs> we'll have it coming in live. We'll be sitting. <laughs> just, oh no. And now they're approaching. Devin's approaching the stand. He's crying. He's crying. <laughs> And there's a line that like made me think of it. And he says, how music establishes conditions in which two people might have a kind of conversation that would be of value to them and without which no such conversation could possibly take place. It's just like a nice building block. And we're talking about love. We're talking about dating. I'm not big on dating apps, but when I was, I was big on linking Spotify to dating to like my profile and other people's profile. Firstly, are you guys on dating apps? Yes. And it, does music play a role in that? 
I'm going to be honest and say that I never linked my Spotify to my Tinder because I was, I didn't know how it brought up like what you were like. I didn't know if it was the most recent and I listened to some lame things sometimes. So I didn't want like it coming out like Rachel's number one artist is the Glee cast because that's usually true. So like, I thought that would be lame and I didn't really want to lead with that. No, I don't usually put it, but when they have a good song, it's a good entryway into conversation. This is something that existentially hits me in my soul of hiding music taste or like blurring it for for some reason and i understand it so tense about it because i'm because he mentions it dr blue mentions it in his uh journal where they're getting to know each other it's in the beginning and the the patient asks what type of music do you like and he says classical just throw it out there get an idea he does like classical but obviously he's gonna like the talking heads and they're gonna bond over that that's gonna be the idea of the journal so I wrote big letters like, why are people afraid to share their music taste? I think of there might be judgment, but also I think it's just so personal to you that it's really exposing something so dear to your heart and it's very revealing to who you are. Thoughts? I totally agree with that. And I, it, it brings to mind, like, you know how on Spotify, you the little bar on the side that like shows what your friends are listening to. There was a period in my life where I would like turn off my share when I was like listening to certain things and I'm happy to report that I've since moved on because that's just like really dumb and stupid. And like, who cares if I'm listening to like heartbreak playlist, you know, like that's okay. Everybody has one. Do you have a heartbreak playlist? That's personal. You don't have to answer that. I have a lot of them and they're titled like very dramatic things. You use music. I think a lot of times to get through something that maybe you're trying to work through or a weird feeling or whatever. And sometimes a playlist can do that, but then to have, your friends and followers observing that process is a lot to, to take sometimes. It's tough because I have a very, um, I think, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but like a lot of the bands I listen to aren't very popular. So it's tough to find people who are also into them. Um, the hipster. Devin's a hipster. I'm a hipster. Dan, that's, is that that's you? Come back. <laughs> I don't know. I lost it. Um, what was your question? <laughs> Tinder. Did you, do you link your Spotify on Tinder? No, I don't look it on Tinder. Because I don't think I'd want to date the people who listen to the same music. (laughs) Thinking about the bands I listen to. (laughs) I always linked my Tinder. And my Tinder was kind of a front to have people follow me on Spotify. I think that's really what it was. Yeah, I thought so. Um, Yeah, which is sad. Going back to like more, I'm just only reinforcing the idea that I don't believe in love. And I'm a, you know, heartless person. Knock it off, Kevin. All right. Devin. I also, I feel, Devin, I also feel, Devin, Rachel, Rachel, Spongebob, I also feel, there we go, we got the reference, check it out. That's so interesting that you'd say you wouldn't date someone if you saw like your exact Spotify thing, because I don't know if I would be instantly in love if I saw like, I wrote down television, the Stone Roses and Nina Simone. If I saw that in one person, I'd be like, I would definitely swipe them right. But then if I just start talking to them and then they're me, like, would, I don't know if I'd date myself. <laughs> I think I would, but. I'm going to second the point, though, because, like, if I was on Tinder and some guy's Spotify link was top Glee cast, I probably wouldn't be into it. Sorry. Because there's a thing, like, I've heard people, Rachel, sorry. Rachel's the host of the Her Life blogcast. Give a shout out to Thank Her you. Life blogcast. On your most recent episode, you were talking about how different dating apps and how Tinder feels a little bit more surface level. It's a lot looks. And I think like Spotify and music is such a deep thing that if you're willing to share, it really 
opens up. And I feel like, I don't know if this is shallow or the exact opposite, but there could be someone I'm scrolling through the th- their profile. I'm like, I don't know, feeling more left swipe. And then I see their Spotify. I'm like, oh, cool. You like Led Zeppelin? Right swipe when I thought I wasn't going to in the beginning. In my experience, the the vast majority of guys, and I'm making a huge generalization here, so like, don't hold me to it, but the vast majority of what I'm going to call the Tinder guy is not someone who's thoughtfully putting together playlists. I'm not saying there's a not deep kind of music to listen to, but whenever I see a Spotify, it's like whatever like pop smoke song is popular right now. If that speaks to your soul, go for it. But it's like whatever club song would be playing in Howl that weekend, like that's the anthem I see. It's Dig not, a little it's not deeper. Very personable. It's not unique, and it doesn't give you any more information on the person because they like who. Mm. Here comes the sun, you know. But exactly. I think I think if I saw Talking Heads in in the Tinder, I I automatic right sweat. Automatic right sweat. I'm gonna. I'll, I'll set my. I'll set my anthem to this if you plays Talking Heads, and we'll just see who I get. And then next week we'll analyze my Tinder match. Please do honestly, if you could do that and make we can make our own scientific research and maybe send it to Doctor Bloom as well. I think. Oh my god, that's fascinating. Is, wait. I think I think I think your quality of matches will go up if based solely off if they mention the the Talking Heads. We have to also note though that now my radius is northeastern Pennsylvania, which limits me. I might have to broaden that radius a little bit yeah big talking heads fandom over there (laughs) i didn't read the dr bloom article so i might just you know be making stuff up here so he uses music as basically a basis to begin conversation with this person yeah it it seemed that he was trying to let the patient dictate the conversation and him react to it and this is kind of what the patient latched onto. He would talk about media, film, and music, and, and really say the most coherent conversations, it seemed, was when he said, when he would say, hey, have you seen this film? Do you like it? Hey, have you seen this song? Heard this song? Do you like it? And that's really where the relationship was able to get grounded and then grow out of, which is how I feel when I'm looking for love. If I'm able to talk to you about music, it helps me understand who you are. And I try not to judge people about it, because I feel like a lot of people will say like, oh, I can't tell you what song I'm listening to because you'll get mad at me. And I'm like, what kind of monster am I? Like, I try not to be that person. But for me, it's just like, if you can talk and think about music and it just helps me understand who you are. That's really, he was kind of trying to explain that scientifically. Yeah, but I, I think it's a really interesting study. I'd like to check it out. But um, I think another point there too is that maybe it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that you find someone who likes the same bands as you but you use that, your passion for the band, right? To spark that conversation, to spark that love. I think that's a big thing people like is people like to see people who are passionate about things, right? That's why I always take girls on a first date to Museum of Natural History. Cause I give my little dino tour, right? And I get that little yeah. sparkle in my eyes and people get excited. They're like, he's passionate about it. Yeah. And I think that that's more of how we should use music is less, because I mean, if I saw someone who had Talking Heads or Nick Cave on the Bad Seeds, uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds on their Tinder profile, yeah, I'd be super liking them um, because you never see people with that. But I also think to introduce someone to that band or to have someone introduce me to a band and then grow to love that band because of my experiences with them, because I've intertwined the idea of the music with the person that I've come to know, I think that's a very strong experience as well. What do you guys think about music specifically has this kind of ability to to link people and to foster these conversations as opposed to different kinds of content, like as opposed to a novel or a poem or a film or something? I would say 
that music is a congregation of a lot of different forms of art. There's poetics, there's instrumentation, there's performance, there's a lot of things. And being so multidimensional, it says a lot of things that you feel or you think that aren't very tangible. This song especially, we've covered so much already and we it's we didn't even get past the first verse. We talked about the intro and now we're talking about all sorts of things and it made us feel all different unique things and it just has a way of saying things that wouldn't come out in other ways. Even if you saw a movie, you could talk about all sorts of things, talk for hours about it, but you know, it just like won't make me know you any better. It would just make you me know how much you like the movie. Yeah, I think music is a very emotional thing just because music itself is emotional, right? It's physical. I mean, scientifically, it's vibrations and air. But if you get hit by like, if you go to a concert, right, and there's a big bass and you get hit by that bass line, things like that, music does impact us on both a physical and an emotional way. And I think that's why we get so invested in it. That's why we want to talk so much about it, because it's so striking, because it sort of goes directly to that a lot of the times it's more about feeling than rationality. Can I bring in Dr. Bloom's answer? Yeah, awesome. First line of the journal. A psychoanalyst says that they remarked that one reason that sexual life gets taken up so frequently in psychoanalysis is because sex is good to think with. And his hypothesis is that Music, much like sex, is first felt as physical, vibrating experience. And only then, if at all, is it extrapolated to the level of symbols and articulation. Both sex and music hit us in this primal, physical level, universally, and then it can go to the brain and to the more symbolic, higher levels of thinking. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Bloom. Thank you, Dr. Bloom. Wow, that's per- that hits the nail on the head. I think that's, yeah. But what did you think, Rachel? What was... Because music is more of the day-to-day. I think for me anyway, like there's always music on in the background and there's always, I, I, I associate it with so much of the day-to-day, not so much like the one time I'm sitting down to watch a movie or the one time I'm like sitting down to read a book because it's so ingrained in my day-to-day. I think that's why it becomes so personal. And it becomes part of my identity. I'll say it. The Glee cast is in my soul. And I think that's because I listen to them in my day to day. You know what I'm saying? So I think maybe that's why we're able to bond over music on a deeper level than maybe a movie or or, or something like that. Yeah, Rachel, that's a good point. It makes me think of going back to my first experience listening to this song. I was in the Fordham University Library. It was like 3 a.m. huddling over a bunch of you know, endless psychoanalytic journals that I printed out. And I, I found this one the most interesting, so I chose it first. And, you know, I was reading pretty deeply. And the Talking Heads reference in the title of This Must Be The Place didn't hit me yet because I didn't know the song and I wasn't very much into the Talking Heads yet. I was just a fool. I was a fool junior <laughs> in college. I had no idea really what the Talking Heads were going to do to my life. So I was reading this. And as I get on, you know, the the relationship between the psychoanalyst and the patient was growing and they they started to know each other more and this thing that really struck me was when the patient starts talking about songs that he would want to die to
just like, whoa, what song would he want to die to? And he says that this must be the place. Sounds like going to heaven. I was like, what song is this? So I looked it up and I was like, that's about right. It sounds like I'm in an elevator listening to elevator music going to heaven. And I literally just got goosebumps. Like that was such a moment for me. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. You must not have heard of the talking song, talking head song called Heaven. <laughs> that might be appropriate. Thing. But no, that is, that's a really cool. Uh, wow. That's the appropriate and I response. Think it's so true. Yeah, yeah. It just makes me think uh, that first line home is where I want to be. Speaking, you know, Catholicly, Catholicly, Christ- from a Christian perspective, biblically, God is meant to call us home at the day of reckoning. Heaven is supposed to be going home. Is that where he wants to be? Are you born with a weak heart? Is that like physically a weak heart? You're going to die sooner? All these things, if you start thinking about it as a song, as a, you know, Rachel, you're talking about a soundtrack to your life. Are you going to have one ready for you when you die? <laughs> That's that the question. That is insane. And oh I can't God. think of a better song to die to. Not yet. I mean, heaven's nice, but heaven doesn't really paint a great picture of of heaven for me. I'd rather die to this must be the place, which makes me feel more warm and fuzzy than heaven. Yeah, and I think what's so powerful about this song too is that, sure, you can look at it as a, a, look at it as a song to die to, but it's really a song. It's an embrace of life. It's just about embracing the moment, right? He's embrace. He's in love, and he's just. Every little moment, every little thing that happens is written it down in the song and it's just experiencing it and treasuring it. And I think that's what's so beautiful about it. And I can't imagine, you know, I don't want to imagine, but I can imagine laying in my deathbed, listening to this song, reflecting on my life, thinking of all of these great moments and just feeling appreciation. I mean, I think this song at the end of the day is just someone who is in love, is appreciating it, wants to treasure it and embracing all those moments of it. That's a really great point because we talked, we've all talked in different ways about this song being almost a montage of being this unconnected thing that kind of just goes throughout life. People say your life flashes before your eyes when you die. Is this just random little couplets and thoughts that get picked up right before you die? And it's just like a nice montage while you're going up to heaven and you just get these little moments of feeling loved or seeing light or seeing wings and falling in love and being alive. I don't know. It could be. I love this. Yeah. I like this so much more than the existentialism nonsense we were talking about before. This makes so much more sense to me. We're wrapping it all up. Like, there is a plan. You're going to heaven, and this is the song that's playing on your way. I'm into it. Yeah. I'm on board. That should be, speaking of dating apps, that should be a hinge you know, profile question. What Prompt. song do you want to die to? <laughs> right. It's morbid, but I like it. Like the person who picks that prompt, just by picking it, you're saying something about yourself. This is fascinating to me. Wow. But I hate to I say don't know it. If I'm, go ahead. But you it. might have a little existentialist in you because this embrace of just living and just life, that's what it's all fair. about at the end of the day. I guess that's fair. They, I mean, that's he, Kierkegaard, like I said, he says, we yeah. understand our lives backwards, but we live them forward. Yes, you can go and you can reflect at the end of your life and say, this is how my life went. But what they want you to do right now is just live. Just enjoy the moment, right? Yeah. Why worry about the future? Why worry about some far off thing? And just learn to appreciate things. My thing that I don't mean to keep like contradicting you, and I'm sorry that I'm doing that. But my whole thing with that is I feel like I 
just like personally with my beliefs and everything, like I'm able to be more in the moment and like not freaking out all the time because in my mind there is a plan and there's a way my life is going to turn out. So I don't need to worry too, too much about like, what if I'm unemployed in a month? Do you know what I mean? Because if I am, that's okay. That's a plan. And I don't think that makes me complacent. I think that just makes me more okay with when things don't go right. But I, I wouldn't feel that way if, if it was just up to me. I'd be panicked all of the time. I really believe that. Welcome to my life, Rachel. I'm <laughs> <laughs> me as the middleman. I'm fine. Right, okay. Right, though? Do you, uh, I, I think there's two, there's two sides of the coin. Um, because there's also no expectation on you. There's no expectation yeah. that you have to live up to something certainly be, certain because you determine. If I'm unemployed right now, that's fine. I'll search for a job, right? You accept the yeah. fact, I think you even, you'd accept the fact too, that you have to go out and find something. But getting off topic here, the point I'm trying to make is basically yeah. that it, it, you can be two ways. That's why a lot of people, I mean, existential is thought of as a nihilistic philosophy, but at the same time, what they're saying is that you just need to live your life as you want to, you know, being free. It's interesting too, because Satra says, we're condemned to be free, right? It's almost mm. like a punishment that we have to be free, that we're responsible yeah. for all of our choices. So yeah, it can be taken either way. Interesting. Mm -hmm. The idea of freedom is very interesting. Thank you for calling on yeah. me like a... <laughs> yes, Kevin. I saw you raise your hand. The idea of freedom is fascinating because I feel like it's a very freeing song. You really can put it on and just let it play. And since there's no strong narrative in the lyrics and it's just such a, there's a strong instrumental part that has no tonic note or, you know, chordal rooting, you can really just like let it revolve around you. And just, it's a song that you can sit back to and let it be a soundtrack to your life. As opposed to, you know, we did Memories Can't Wait last week, which is super challenging. You're not going to like be doing math homework while listening to Memories Can't Wait. Maybe you will if you're, you know, super into the talking heads like me and Devin and soon to be <laughs> Rachel. But this song is like, you can drive down the highway to this. You could have a nice deep talk with a friend. You could be, you know, making out with your significant other. Oh, as well okay, too. Kevin. You, know, um, you can be doing anything with it. Yeah. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just like a play in a loop song. And I didn't, I wasn't looking for that. But like when, when I came across the song, that's exactly what I did. And it just played on a loop. And then for a couple of days, I just kind of listened to it because it's easy. And, and like you said, you can be doing other things in the background. I think that leads me back to my point about music in general before it. Like, this is a song that can be, that can become a part of your life. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Because you're deciding what's happening in the meantime. This, the way it's set up, the structure, the long intro, the haphazardness of the lyrics kind of allows you the space to make, we're circling right on back here because it allows you to make your own meanings for it. And that could change like the weather. And I think that's a cool thing about this song. Absolutely. If we can talk about circling, sure. if we can also talk about music theory for a sec to maybe get hey. an idea of what about it, what about this song yeah. delivers this unique feeling. Devin mentioned earlier that it's a naive melody because all the players in the band changed instruments and they played since maybe they weren't on their home instrument, they played simpler songs and was able to make a song composition that was much simpler and relaxing. But in terms of chordal ideas and, and harmony, this song doesn't have a tonic chord. 
it's not really in a key. It rotates between three chords. Dr. Bloom shouts it out. Dr. Bloom analyzes it as the five chord, the six chord, the four chord, the six chord, the five chord, the six chord. It just keeps going back and forth between these three slightly related chords. They're not super strong like a tonic and a five, five, six, and four. They're all right next to each other. It's just revolving, but never touching. It's almost like the moon and the earth. They're right next to each other. They're revolving. They're clearly related to each other and influencing each other, but they're never going to bump into each other and force you to like jump out of your trance and be like, whoa, the moon is crashing to earth. Not sure how I got to a moon apocalypse, but that's how this song really builds its harmony and, and laid back nature is, is those core relationships. Plus that more bare bones instrumentation. Yeah. And I um, mean, go ahead. No, no, go. I was just gonna, I lost it actually, you guys. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, it's no Kev, Kevin, this reminds me of some other music theory thing you were talking to me about, which I'm not like, I don't want to try to butcher it by explaining it, but you know, often in, in, I guess, normal songs, you're like looking for the resolution at a certain point, like it gets to a place. And I don't know if that really happens here. Like it's all, it never, the conflict never arises. Like you're just in this cool, chill place the whole time. And right. Is that an accurate thing to say? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, being, you know, absorbed by, surrounded by Western music our whole lives, going back to the classical people and Baroque, Baroque composers, we are ingrained in our body is chordal progression, starting somewhere, going somewhere complicated, but that it makes sense. And finally having that beautiful resolution at the end, the big final Beethoven note. And that's still present in pop songs, in top 40 songs on, on, douches tinder profiles all the way down <laughs> to more complicated beautiful songs like this the must box. be the place <laughs> yeah and dr bloom actually has a nice quote in that um he's quoting another another uh psychologist with the last name markman who suggests that without a sense of movement towards a harmonic goal or a tonic key time is not goal directed and linear but suspended like dream time we're not really having to go anywhere we don't have that underlying subconscious idea that there should be a resolution and chords resolving to other chords. We're just like, this is it. We're in these three chords. We picked them. We're sticking with them. And we're going to float around with them until the song fades out. There's no ending unless there's the live version that they do in Stop Making Sense where they end on a nice, beautiful, angelic harmony. But this song fades out and it can go on forever. Like Rachel said, it's just a, you can just loop it forever and you wouldn't mind. Yeah, and I mean, like, let's bring it home. Let's bring it back to Dan and Juliet. They're just lost in that moment. Violet! <laughs> Juliet, Violet, I'm sorry. Not Juliet! Dan and Violet. This isn't Shakespeare. <laughs> Dan, with the Violet hair, too. Yeah. But Dan and Violet, they're completely lost in their moment. They're fully in love. Nothing really matters, right? And that moment is that moment itself. It doesn't need a beginning. It doesn't need an end. It doesn't need some external meaning. Whether they believe in that or not, they can just live and they can just enjoy it. And I think what that's what this song wants us to do is just take love at face value. Take it for what it is. Don't analyze it too much. Take it as it comes and just experience it. I hope that Dan and Violet make it throughout whatever apocalypse is happening outside their little bubble. They're happy. I'm happy if they're the happy. Moon apocalypse, they are... The moon apocalypse, I think. Well, apocalypse. right. Yeah. Probably. You know, Definitely. I hope, I hope they make it. But knowing Dan and Violet as well as we do, 
it right. it's almost doesn't matter if they make it a long time as long as they're there in the moment together at the, at that time and place. I agree. I meant physically make it through the apocalypse is what I meant. Like oh, not yeah, the yeah. I meant that I wanted them to good. survive. But mm-hmm. like Hopefully. I I agree with what you're saying as well. Yeah. Yeah. But how romantic to get away from the existentialist to die for your loved one. I mean that's romantic. That's the most romantic gesture. Shakespeare. That's my Tinder Juliet. bio. <laughs> Juliet. <laughs> Another reason why I picked this song was because it was on the Speaking in Tongues album, and I referenced this album in one of my final projects for an English class, I think it was two years ago now, sophomore year, and we were analyzing, there were two different works that we were kind of like morphing together under the concept of like speaking in tongues. That was like the theme of the project. So it was Gloria Anzaldua's A Letter to Third World Women Writers and Henderson's Dialogics, Dialectics, and the Black Woman Writers Literary Tradition. Both of them make reference to speaking in tongues as a means to bridge the gap between essentially like a white girl reading this in a lit classroom at Fordham and like their Black female experience obviously those two things are different. Speaking in tongues was the link. And my cool pop culture reference to make to like help my class understand this concept was the speaking in, speaking in tongues album by the Talking Heads, which I thought was like, how cool am I for bringing this up even though I hadn't listened to it. But I found a quote from Rolling Stone magazine. David Frick said, um, praised the quote crossover nature of the album, calling it Quote, the album that finally obliterates the thin line separating arty white pop music and deep black funk, which is exactly what I was arguing in the paper. So like there was something interestingly racial about speaking in tongues. But my point in bringing all of this up is that that was my cool example for the class. And then my partner who didn't do anything except do one slide, put up a quote, put up the clip from SpongeBob where he's at the bus station talking to that tongue person. And they're like... I can't do it. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? They're in rock bottom. <laughs> yes. And like the class lost it. They thought that was the funniest thing that ever happened. And no one even remembered my talking head's coolness. So I'm still a little bitter about that. But that's my SpongeBob talking If your presentation was a profile on Tinder, I'd super like it. Talking heads. Really? SpongeBob references. SpongeBob slide. <laughs> intersectionality. Kevin, feminism. That's so nice. Yeah. Right swipe, super like. If your final project was a Tinder profile, I'd super like. Man, high praise. I'm gonna email my professor and tell him. Yeah. Tell me said that. <laughs> so as we wrap things up here, Kevin and I like to end it each week with how we're going to stay hungry. What about this conversation is gonna keep us thinking after? So I pose it to you both. What are you? What's making you stay hungry? I'm going to bring it back to love because that's what we've been talking about this whole time. But I think for me, it will be, I guess, trying to not reframe my ideas about love, but just open the window for more, more opportunity for how I view it, maybe to make it a more personal thing rather than like a coupling. Like, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Doesn't need to. We stopped making sense so long ago. To allow myself to be open to it as me, just a person, not like finding my person. Yeah. Got a little existentialist in you now. We won, Kevin. We did it. This is all about winning. (laughs) (laughs) Changing the minds of every guest. Yeah, Rachel, let me know if you find any handsome neurotics on Hinge or Tinder because... I absolutely will. We got a couple in the works if you're listening. I'm going to link this in my Hinge. Wait, wouldn't that be wild if I link this episode and then we'll see who listens to it and then we'll just, we'll have them on. It'd be wild. (laughs) 
we'll have them on the next episode. So what's going to make you stay hungry, Kevin? Me? I am going to... <laughs> oh, me? Oh, me? Uh, I'm like in the corner wearing sunglasses. Oh, I uh, didn't see you there. He's me? Violet. <laughs> I feel like me and Violet would get along, but I don't want to get in between them and, and Dan. Violet and Dan. Yeah. I'm going to keep looking at this song's lyrics as unrelated vignettes and just keep going into that because that has been the most musically groundbreaking thing in my life recently in that I made up a connection between them. There is some underlying connection, but it's, it's so not surface level. It's deeper than that. And I'm just going to keep listening to this song over and over again on a loop and just see how I fill in the blanks and kind of observe myself listening and see how I filled in the blanks and make a narrative out of unrelated things. And maybe see if that's a pattern of behavior where I'm connecting things that aren't really connected in my daily life. Wow. Devin? That's a good answer, Kevin. How are you going to stay hungry? I'm going to be thinking about love. I'm going to be thinking about meaning. And I'm going to find a song, I think, that I could die to. And I'm going to make sure it's really obscure and I'm just never going to listen to it and then I'm never going to die. So that's what I'll be working on until next week. Rachel? You cracked the code. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation. I'm so glad we got to do This Must Be The Place and especially with you. You brought in some Thanks. really cool points, a lot to think about. So thank you so much. Where can we, where can people find you? You can find me personally on Instagram at RachelMalik13. I've been doing a lot of baking, so that's fun. And definitely tune in to the weekly blogcast. That's Her Life, H.E.R.Life, um, on all streaming platforms. Nice. Cool. Is that we? This is the beginning of a nice, beautiful friendship between the Her Life blogcast and Devin and Kevin. Stop making sense. I couldn't be more thrilled. I really couldn't. Rachel, thank you. Devin, thank you. Thank you. Kevin, thank you. Listeners, thank you. <laughs> this has been Devin, Kevin, and Rachel. Stop making sense. Till next time. Bye. Nice. Stop